toss that rusty old grill into the lake and set that Barca lounger on fire. This is the Dadward Spiral. You have now tuned into episode number 13 of the Dadward Spiral. My name is Aaron Pruner. With me is Eddie. Hi, Eddie. Hi. It's good to see you, man. It's good to see you. No one can see us, but it's good to see you. Um, <laughs> thanks to everyone tuning in for another episode. Uh, <laughs> some interesting things have gone on in my life since last we chatted. But before yeah. we get into that, I want to send a shout out to Dragon Wagon Radio, who hosts the show. Uh, they got some cool merch on the website. If you want to go to dragonwagonradio.com and check all of the merchandise, coffee mugs, uh, clothing out. And if you like our show, which I hope you do, or else why are you listening? Um, please go to iTunes and give us a review. Subscribe, like us, send us flowers. You know, a little candy gram would be nice. You know, send me a little little Father's Day card in a few months. I'm going to be 45. I'll, I'll appreciate it. How are you doing, Eddie? I'm all right, man. I'm eating chocolate. Because it's that kind of day. It's noon on a Thursday as we record this, and I'm eating chocolate. So that should, that should indicate to you the kind of day. And kind of days that we've had, um, nothing crazy, nothing out of the ordinary, just standard life stress stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm, I'm sure you have quite a bit of that going on recently as well. <laughs> and I think that, and the reason why, and by the way, for our listeners, this is not our opportunity just for our, our self therapy as it is, although it is often that uh, it's going to tie into our guest. A little bit later uh it's also going to tie into some of the themes of what we're discussing today and uh, i think aaron can definitely speak to that quite a bit more than i can so (laughs) well i want to start this show by talking about some dad logic with you eddie please when you become a parent certain things in in the world are viewed differently if you are and specifically and I've I've run into this problem or this issue situation multiple times, you're out with your kid, you're in the car, you're in rush hour traffic, you're nowhere near a public restroom, your child has to use the potty. What do you sure. do? Do you break the potty out in the back seat or front seat of your car while you're stuck in traffic? You pull over to the red curb and have them go, which is something that happened to me with my daughter. Yes, you do. And it's just part of living it's part of life it's part of our reality at this point because what is the other option if you don't have the facilities right Mm -hmm. you are surviving that is survival mode you're taking care of business am i correct in saying this and there Uh, yeah i would say i would say that's right there is nothing wrong with that so what then happens if you are faced with a situation like that yourself um there's several and I'm ways going to, to explain. This. I'm going Please. to explain. I'm about to share Please. a story with you. Oh, uh, my sit, sitting back now. My first week on this new job that I just quit this week, um, I was working from home that day. My wife um, was supposed to be taking a class at home. So my mother-in-law was coming over with her dog to watch my daughter while I was in the bedroom working, which already I'm setting myself up for for a situation. That morning, my wife was going to take my car to work, but it turned out that a light was left on in my car and the battery was dead. So that morning was also street cleaning and I had to get my car moved or else I would have gotten like a $70 ticket. I called AAA, had the the battery jumped just in time, but I was supposed to start work at nine o'clock in the morning. Street cleaning was at 10. I waited for the tow truck driver. I already told him I was going to be late in training. 
tow truck driver gets there, jumps the battery. I get in. I drive a Prius. Now, I hadn't had my coffee or anything that morning, and I drove to get coffee. Parked the car, got out, went to get a cup of coffee. Right as I got out, I was like, fuck, that car's going to be dead again when I get back to the car. I got my cup of coffee from the local cafe. Go back to the car. Car is dead because I didn't drive it around for 20 to 30 minutes to charge the battery like a fucking dumbass. Oh, boy. So <laughs> at that point, I had to call AAA again. I'm I'm like now almost an hour late to work. I called AAA. They send a guy. It's going to be like a 25 minute wait. I realize at that point, oh, I have to use the bathroom. We are living in a pandemic currently. We're still <laughs> restrooms <laughs> publicly are not available to uh, people, I guess. And even at the cafe, I ordered my cup of coffee from. They usually have a public restroom closed. I'm in a nice part of Sherman Oaks. I'm pacing the street at this point. I put my coffee in the car because that's just fuel for a fire that I cannot put out. <laughs> I'm pacing. I'm pacing. It's getting worse, man. And the tow truck driver is like 20 minutes away. So I'm like, I'm going to have to make a decision at this point. I have two <laughs> options. Find somewhere to go or take a dump in my pants. And <laughs> that second option is not okay with me. So I'm like formulating a plan in my head of what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And I'm starting to scope <laughs> out the area I'm in. I'm in this nice, nice suburban Sherman Oaks area. I... <laughs> I walked by a dry cleaners and I saw, oh, they have a Kleenex box at the door. I'm just going to grab a ton of tissues, you know, just in case I need to take care of some issues here. And uh, the guy inside looked at me crazy. Um, and then I just, you know, it got to a point where I'm like, well, this is happening and I can't stop it from happening. And there are no public restrooms anywhere around. So I, <laughs> I ran to a place. I don't want to say specifically where because I don't want to really fully incriminate myself, but let's just say it was near a river and there was some nice bushes and some tall grass and <laughs> I made it look like I was taking photos with my phone because oh, there boy. were people out jogging. There were people walking their babies and strollers <laughs> and <laughs> <laughs> it was like, okay, okay, this is going to happen. Homeless people do this all the time. Uh, and so it was like a three second drop. My pants went and just shoved a bunch of tissues down there and hooked my pants up. And right when I did that, uh, I got back on this trail and a guy passed me. He's like, good morning. And I'm like, I'm so oh, happy I have my mask on. I get a call on my phone that the tow truck driver is at my car and I'm two blocks away from my car. So I had to run back to the car, deal with all of that after what I just did to humiliate myself in public. And then I got in my car. The guy said, oh, you just need to leave the car running for like 20 minutes. And I'm like, are you sure I drive a hybrid? Got in the car drove home at this point i'm over an hour late in starting work i left the car running in the car for 20 minutes i had to park far from home because an accident happened in front of my house i i went in i worked my day my QAnon mother-in-law was here with her dog <laughs> oh no my daughter was not really having it it was super distracting all goddamn day i was making mistakes left and right because i'm supposed to be editing work writing and I got to a point where I was like, fuck, I'm just I, this is not a good 
<laughs> I started my day on the wrong foot and I'm in a scenario right now where I just cannot focus or concentrate. My day ended at five. We had dinner and I thought, I'm just going to go check my car, walk to the car. My battery was dead and I <sighs> called AAA for a third time. And then I just went for a long drive and got myself some donuts. But that was the first week of the job that I no longer have. And that was my mm. public pooping story. And I'm sharing that story. At, I'm not at all embarrassed. I'm not embarrassed at all because I feel like I made an important decision that was uh, informed of the situation I was in. That was a survival mode kind of thing. Like I had, I, I mean, there was no other option, Eddie. I, I was no, stuck I mean, with the Every parent is faced with a poop nightmare at one point or another, just like, and by nightmare, I mean like a situation, not because like, Oh, there's poop. Like poop is just a, a standard, you know, especially with kids under, under potty training age poop. And even after poop is just sort of like, you know, it's, it's like when you, uh, it's like when I joined the military, it's like uh, in the first couple of days, they give you your, your, your pack that has all your gear in it. And you just, you get this big loadout. It's like, here you go. The, the poop nightmare is part of the parenting starter pack. It's like, yeah. you're going to have this bag of experiences that you're going to invariably experience. The poop nightmare is in there. I've had my experiences with it. Um, you know, for many parents, it's the explosive diarrhea mid diaper change. That's usually oh, yeah. part of it. That's that's standard equipment. And then it's and usually some sort of public facing poop nightmare um, that just goes part and parcel of being a, a dad. So this probably isn't even your first poop nightmare. For me or uh, for, for my kid? For uh, no, I keep thinking in my head. I wonder what happened when uh, when that was found, if it was found. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I left it behind. And now I'm admitting to you all what 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 I had to do. And I had to. That was just it. I, I was you weigh in your head. Well, you know, right. there's no public. Then I start thinking about all the homeless people in my area, what they have to go through. And then I just started feeling bad. Just right. Like, and pissed off and angry. And that I took that into my entire day. And so that informed my day, which is what I was originally going to talk to you about when we were going to record last week, but it didn't end up happening. Mm. That's okay. That's all right. Our lives are uh, in flux. Our schedules are in flux. Schedules are definitely in flux right now. That's, that's for, that is for sure. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I, you know, I work with an office that is primarily in Las Vegas, which is fine because it's the same time zone, but there's teams in, on you know the east coast of Canada, as well as Ireland, I have I have twice weekly calls with uh, an, uh, a cohort in uh, in I think they're in Croke. I don't I don't I actually I need to ask them what part of Ireland they're in. But uh, lovely people love chatting with them. But like they're ending their day as I'm beginning mine. And um, uh, this week we've been on a large group project that requires a lot of like synergy. And so I will you know. A uh, great example, I created this sort of master document, this like 20 slide presentation and uh, ha I need collaboration with them. But um, because they're so late in the evening, I didn't see that many of them were requesting access, like edit access to this thing in the middle of the night for me. So it became so it's like th that part of it becomes like frustrating of trying to get everybody in sync. And then like right now we're still in kind of like, it's still late night over there right now, but they're still up mm -hmm. working on it. 
um, and, and kind of like getting our final little, little notes in. So it's, it's a, it's an interesting collaborative process. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it can be, it can be a lot. So, I mean, that's not dissimilar from like what of a lot of, I think parents are, cause like things are opening back up. There's definitely work to be had and be done. Some people are in office. Some people are not. I just got my first COVID vaccine shot today. Um, yeah. How do you feel? I, I feel f- powerful. Uh, levitating a little bit. Um, my footprints leave craters, uh, but I'll get used to it. No, uh, in all seriousness, I feel fine, a little lightheaded. Um, so if I'm yeah. a little, if I'm a little loopy on this podcast, you know, beg for did you get but, the whole um, pins and needles feeling in your arm? No, I didn't get that. I got um, for, for a second. I it felt I got the shortness of breath, like almost like an allergic reaction that I get sometimes. Um, so, and I do have a lot of allergies, but no medicine allergies. So I was, I was curious to see if I'd feel any like reaction to it. Uh, and then just a little bit lightheaded and then a little, a little burpy, nothing, nothing too crazy. So oh. like, yeah, like just I'm... now, <laughs> like a little, but other than that, I feel pretty okay. So, yeah. Yeah. It was weird when I got it. My, my whole arm just felt uh, like it was asleep. You, you, you mentioned your, your, your mother-in-law. My mother is, is, uh, I wouldn't say she's full QAnon, but she's Q- Doing on adjacent, uh, she's and I'm and I recently completed the Into the Storm documentary, the excellent documentary. Yeah, I feel HBO like mine Max. is adjacent as well. Like she's not going to admit that she's full on into it, but the stuff that she says is very in line with. Yeah, it's more towards that direction than not. Um, yes, and and so yeah, so it's uh yeah, it's um it's interesting. So, um. Yeah, it's it's interesting to see. Uh, it was interesting to watch that. I I knew a lot of it. I've been listening to a lot of podcasts of it. Uh, but the access that that guy had, and as a as a doc filmmaker myself, like it was it was a uh, it was really interesting to watch. I'm just curious what effect it's having on in laws and what effect it's having on. It's having uh, none on mine. Hmm. My and I found out. Uh, I think it was yesterday, the day before. My mom told me my uncle, her brother. Um, man, and and every time I I hear about him, I just think about what happened in his life to make him go down this road. And again, it goes back to the accident that killed my grandfather. I was I feel like that is the main catalyst in sending my uncle to Idaho to live in more of a rural neighborhood away from a big city life, like what he was doing in L.A. and in San Diego, and he. His ideology over the years, like he was raised a Democrat, but he is now a hardcore Republican, an NRA member. He's, you know, anti Dr. Fauci, voted Trump. Jesus. He and he like said to my mom, my and he's 68 or 69. He's not going to get the vaccine. And his son, my cousin, uh, I stopped following on Facebook a while ago because he was posting. I mean, a while ago, I'm like years ago because he was posting stuff about Barack Obama being a Muslim that's not an American, you know, doing the whole birther stuff. And I'm right. just like, I don't have any time for this. And hearing that they're both and his son is living with him in his house not getting the vaccine because quote unquote, they're fine and their friends are fine. (laughs) And he said, if we were to talk further about this, we would get into an argument is what he said to my mom. I'm just like, it doesn't surprise me. And yet it surprises me. Yeah. Exactly. Right. I I feel like, 
uh, I have, I have a, I can't call him a friend. I, I recently unfollowed him on Twitter just because I, I just couldn't do it anymore and I won't name him, but um, he's, I, I don't want to say he's well-known. He's, he was a co-host on, on a, on a, on a well-known podcast. He's directed some music videos for some names. Uh, so he's in that tier. He's recently had like some personality changes and gotten big into crypto and he posted a video. <laughs> that's all you had to say. That, yeah, that's, that's all, all you had, had to say. That's all you had to say. He got really, really big into crypto. He's retired from Hollywood. He's gotten big into crypto. That's that's like his arc the last six months. Um, but and and he's our age, you know. Uh, but he posted a video about like, hey, I just heard that Hank Aaron just died, and he got the vaccine like two weeks ago. Like oh, I don't yeah. I don't know about y'all, but that's that's not okay with me. And I'm gonna wait. I'm like, yes, yeah, how I saw old that. was it's like the Prince Philip thing. It's like, yeah, he yep. died. It's like, oh, he he just got it like a month and a half ago. Yeah, he was also like almost 99. He yeah, was he was 90, he was yeah. months away from being a hundred. Like, yeah, maybe I don't know, the more obvious thing that could kill a person, like being old as shit, <laughs> is the thing that killed him. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. It's just getting into crypto. I'm sorry. I'm still laughing about it's like the other day. I'm outside drinking coffee and I'm listening to my my neighbors who are very anti-vax, very pro-Trump yeah. MAGA. We're blasting YouTube videos, really getting in deep about the Snyder cut. And I'm like, there really is this Venn diagram where the overlap between anti-vaxxers and Gamergate folks and Snyder oh cut God. people. It, it, yeah. Well, so I, <laughs> to be fair, there are some Snyder, there are some Snyder cut people that are, are, you know, like we're legitimate. Just like, I just like his movies and I wanted to see the vision. Done, and that's, that's fine. That's good for you. Glad you got your candy. Um, and then there's like, there was like one guy, Remember, like it was right, right, leading up to the Snyder Cut. They were like they released this like little promo for it that was like, no, I didn't focus. It, I didn't pay any attention. It's okay. So they released this little promo that was like <laughs> basically, it was like this multi. It was like a CG thing of this multifaceted, um, like almost like a, a sculpture of like all the characters, and like each one of them was like up against a pillar that had different affectations around their characters. Okay, and yes, with, I have seen. Yeah, and so with Batman. Batman was like up against a pillar and there was like, so one of the affectations around it was like the, his mother's pearl necklace kind of like in this orbit around him. And uh, a Snyderverse fan posted online, like Zack Snyder is like the greatest filmmaker I've ever seen. Like Batman bound to a, a pillar of justice by his, his dead mother's pearls. Uh, and like, I just responded with the, um, the the meme from Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, where Garth Marenghi says, "I know writers who use subtext, and they're all cowards," because it's just like <laughs> it's, it's like th there's the reason why I bring <laughs> this up pull. is that, that the reason I bring this <laughs> it's a great show. Go see it. I think it's still on Hulu. The reason I bring this up is that like the if I do see a commonality between Q and 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 not just I don't want to just blankly say Snyderverse fans, but like like pop culture fans who latch onto a thing and have it become a cause. Uh, and the, and like the folks I know who are really into crypto is that when you're really into any of these things, it's sort of replaced. You know, really into crypto. Well, I, dude, I used to, I used to, okay. In fairness, I used to work at a tech company that, that had like that, that developed like blockchain tech. So I, I, I know people who were, I know people who engage with crypto in like a professional setting, but like the people who are like into it as a hobby or as like their path to wealth, the thing that all these things have in common is that 
it just sort of like replaces all the other parts of their personality. It like yeah, sorry, it just becomes laughing. this. No, it's fine. It's it, I, I let you get your giggles out. It's totally fine. <laughs> uh, like, and it is it is funny. But like the Snyderverse folks I've engaged with, they only post or think or like that's like the dominant thing in their lives. Yeah. Or like the or or the Q folks. Like that's you know I mean I saw this in you know certain members of my own family. Like it's all they fucking talked about. Like right. I remember just having a conversation with my mom a couple of years ago where I'm like, can we just have a conversation about something other than like what are you into other than this? What are your hobbies? Like, you know, and it was, it was hard for her to answer with anything other than that. And, and, uh, and the, you know, the Snyderverse folks, it's like, I, man, I just be into other shit. If you were into other shit, it probably will prevent you from going far down into any one of these things. And you know what, um, what we're going to be talking a lot about in this episode, even though we're now like 25 minutes in and we've started with poop and now we're talking about QAnon is uh, authenticity has been on my mind a lot over the past few weeks. Yeah. And when I say authenticity, I mean, being just being true to yourself in yeah. who you are and what brings you joy. And I feel like just the concept of truth in the world in general is so skewed right now. We talked about when Jeff Kanata was on the, this whole post-truth reality, which yeah. I still can't wrap my head around that notion but like being true to yourself i was working at a place i'm not going to name the name of the website but it went against every fiber of my being to take the job because they have a really bad reputation in my industry for exploiting writers and uh doing what drew McQueenie was talking a lot about when he was on yeah. the show about the ways in which Film criticism has just gone towards the direction of marketing. And yes. this website, I have not seen Batman versus Superman or Justice League or any of these movies. The amount of articles I have edited over the past two and a half weeks, I could tell you the beginning, middle and end of uh, Justice League, the Snyder Cut. <laughs> Don't know what a dark side is, but I have. Uh, edited articles about dark side, about the Joss Whedon cut, like all these things I do not need to know about in my life because they don't really bring me the joy I was referring to. The joy that I was looking for in this job was the paycheck. And yeah. we had a, a, a emotional talk here at home where my wife begged me to leave the job, not just because of the type of work and the ways at which it wasn't fulfilling my soul, but also because it was not um, conducive to my responsibilities here at home and otherwise. But I, I'll tell you, as soon as she said that huge weight lifted off my shoulder because I just kept going back to thinking there is other stuff I want to do in my life and other things I want to put out into the world that is that I think is more impactful and more serving to, I don't know if the common good is the right term here, but when you get so buried in one topic, whether it's QAnon or justice league, Snyder cut, whatever it is, and that is it. And then you're working in a job that just adds fuel to just those topics. It, I could see the tunnel vision. I can see it. I can not necessarily living in it myself, but it made me so feel so claustrophobic. Do you know what I'm saying? Emotionally claustrophobic. And I can only imagine 
when you're in like a QAnon frame of mind or just, you know, in a type of community where this is the end all be all of your life, how emotionally claustrophobic that can end up feeling. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I do. I definitely do. So this week, this episode, we are going to be joined by somebody who I hope we can talk more with about finding that sense of authenticity in your creative work and how as parents, we can communicate that and champion that because that, you know, I feel like it's harder and harder to just be open and teach a person to be open with compassion and love a, a kid, even though I think kids are kind of armed with, with that in general when they're brought into the world. But we, we, um, we tend to operate off of fear, I think, uh, more than not. So joining us this week is a, let's see here. How do I, how do I introduce you? You're a comedian. You're a comedy writer. Uh, you've done podcasts. You, uh, I remember you did an episode of fangirling at Nerdist with my friend Alicia Lutz back when yeah. she was at Nerdist. Uh, you I have, hosted fan. I was a host. You were a host. You were a host. On season, you, on season two, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You yeah. were a panelist at, at places like Comic-Con and other conventions. And, but uh, more importantly, you're just an awesome person. And I'm so excited to have you on here. Uh, Danny Fernandez has joined the show. And you know what? You're just the second woman we've had on the show. This is a show about fatherhood and we need to get more voices that speak on different um, perspectives and experiences in this world. You don't need to be a father to be on our show. So thank you for joining us. For sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. We actually referenced you in a previous episode because I had seen one of your um, uh, one of your TikTok videos uh, where you talked about, I'm going to probably screw up the phrase into this, but neuro-linguistic conditioning. DBT? Yeah, DBT. Uh, specifically with the phrase that you had about using and instead of, uh, yes. but for me that like when I saw that, uh, I think a lot of times we think very deep thoughts around a, a concept or a premise and we, it, it's a lot of sort of sweat equity to try to like get to uh, a, a revelation or a conclusion. But seeing that video of yours, just made like so many things align for me. Go like, oh God, yeah, okay, that's an easy thing to incorporate while addressing my very complicated relationships with my family. So like when having you talk about that, and especially because you know the pilot you sold to HBO has a lot to do with sort of your experiences in the mental health system, um, it was a big motivator for us because, you know, just like we talk a lot about in this podcast about how we, as parents, specifically as fathers, we have to be very mindful of our kids' mental health while at the same time constantly working on ourselves because our kids are always learning from our behavior no matter what we're doing. And, mm -hmm. you know, what are the, it, it can often feel like insurmountable the amount of effort you have to do to, to manage both. But simple things like that, I think, are really impactful and powerful. I, I don't really, I'm not leading to a specific question. I think it's just a lot of the stuff that you're talking about seems to align well with that. If, if you could talk about how little things that you've picked up or worked to help you recontextualize your own past or, or make sense of it if, if, to your comfort level. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the DBT, which is dialectical behavioral therapy and die meaning two. So it's like two seemingly opposing statements that seem like opposites can actually exist at the same time is actually very healing. I feel like it's such an important way to incorporate 
um, trauma and allowing these deferring so a lot of as far as fathers a lot of it can go to family it's like the example I used is you know I forgive my father and I don't want to see him again like the Mm. fact that both of those could be true and valid you know as opposed to but which makes only one of them true right typically you'll say I forgive my father but which kind of negates the first part of it um but saying you know I love my mom this is an example it's not my mom but I love my mom and she's an addict and I can't have her in my life anymore. Like those, you know, so, so looking back at our growing up, I think a lot of the trauma that I experienced growing up and, 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 you know, still experience trauma, uh, just being a woman of color in America, (laughs) you know, I think you can have really, uh, I would say even if we're talking about immigrants, it's like my family immigrated here and it's like they, you know, for a, a quote unquote better life or whatever the reason might be. And uh, it still is a really terrifying country to live in. You know, yeah. there are are people who, even people of color who have served, actually Latinos make up some of the uh, biggest portion of the military. We're actually some of the most decorated. And a lot of my family is uh, has been in the Navy, Air Force and Marines. But um So it's, you know, people of color have served in this country and, you know, might hate elements of this country, you know? And so uh, that's also a reason why I hate when they say like, we'll just leave. And I want to be like, well, technically the land that I'm on, my ancestors have been here. (laughs) So uh, technically like their bones are underneath the land that like I'm currently on. And, and um, anyways, so Mm-mm. that it's a lot but yeah so I feel like that uh helps us with our our conflicted feelings that they're both valid um and yeah I think just to wrap up though with the super heavy conversation that we just had so that people don't write me hate mail is that I think you can use dbt for you know Spanish is such an important part of my culture. It is my last name. It is the names of my family members. It is, you know, uh, passed down from generation to generation. And I can also accept that it wasn't the native language that was spoken, uh, on this land or the land that is known as Mexico. And, um, it's not an indigenous language. And also it is really problematic. One side of my ancestors probably did something really horrible to another side of my ancestors. And, um, both of those can exist. Right. Yeah. And it can still be a beautiful language that we name our children after. That is my surname. That is, you know, so making space. And, and that's what I feel like is lost on social media. I want to say that is completely lost. It's very black and white. It's either you agree with this thing or you agree with this thing. Yeah. And there's no room for like, we are very complicated species. Um, I think my community can be very complicated. Um, I think my religion, you know, my family's very Catholic. Catholicism is also homophobic and I am queer. I think like all of those things can exist. And DBT for me helps making all of this valid, all the conflict and, you know, elements of it valid. But I feel like whenever I try to have these conversations, it gets shot down immediately, or you're seen as not being a team player. You're not, you know, all of, all of that. So, or you're seen as hating your family because you distance yourself from your family. And it's like, this is what I have to do to 
to survive. Um, It doesn't mean, you know, if you cut someone out of your life, it doesn't necessarily mean you hate them. It just means that for your mental health and for your healing, you might not be able to have them in your day-to-day life. And I just feel like I've done so much therapy that I'm able to hold space. That's what I would say is asking people, especially people listening to this, hold space for both of those things to be true. Um, Yeah. Yeah, we we try and and just to kind of give you and I've talked about this on the show before. I never wanted to be a dad. I now have a two and a half year old daughter and I grew up um, in the aftermath of an accident. A palm tree killed my grandfather three years before I was born by falling on my grandfather and grandmother's car on my grandmother's birthday. My mom did not deal with the trauma of that. My my uncle, who is now a far right wing QAnon NRA member, moved to a rural neighborhood and it doesn't. He's never met my daughter or my wife. And I kind of grew up in the aftermath of that trauma and didn't know how to handle it. And there was a lot of fear and anger and anxiety that I was carrying with me throughout my life that came to a head when I learned I was going to be a dad and all these things. Cause I never knew my dad and um, talking about these issues about that. I mean, that's the, what's it called? DBT. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, it's still hard for me to wrap my head around because I'm still holding on to the, yes, there's this statement, but also I am firmly rooted in my anger and depression and resentment. And, you know, there was a time I tried to kill myself. And then three months later I was on VR troopers doing slapstick comedy. It's like this weird dynamic in my life, which has been be this funny comedic guy on camera but also deal with all this dark shit off camera. And I know that you um, worked in standup and you, you write comedy and there is the trauma you um, just referenced. We don't even have to go deep into that, but um, specifically, and this isn't really talking from a parenting perspective. I just want to know from a you perspective, how has that helped you writing comedy in sort of reconciling the stuff you've had to deal with in your life? Um, I mean, I feel like comedy is a great coping mechanism for, for trauma. I feel like a lot of us, you know, I feel a lot of people in entertainment and specifically comedians or people that pursue comedy, there has to be like something wrong with you to want to pursue this life. <laughs> I don't think any normal person would, <laughs> I think if I had a normal childhood, I would not have pursued. If I had like happy parents and a happy life, I would, you know, be some, some doing something else. that's not entertaining. That's not seeking validation. Also, I want to say that entertainment yeah. is seeking outside validation constantly. I think we feed off of that. Um, and it's not enough for your work to just exist. It's like, you want, you want to make others laugh. You want other, you actually want to relate to others. I feel like, yes. A lot of times we're like the class clowns. And to me, that sometimes that is definitely a coping mechanism. I feel like a lot of times the class clown was had walls up, you know, was was overcompensating for something uh, and found humor was a way to I know um, my ex, Mark Ellis, uh, was bullied a ton for his way. I was bullied as well. Um, he's yeah. a stand up comic and he was bullied a ton. Um growing up and he was a class clown. And I think that was his way, you know, you look at like Chris Farley and stuff and it's Mm -hmm. like, that was their shield when they knew that they would be, you know, how to relate, connect, get people to kind of, you know, see them as human was to make them laugh. And 
yeah. So I think that a lot of times that's why we pursue what we pursue. Um, but I definitely think therapy is still necessary. I don't think comedy is therapy. <laughs> I've, I've, as someone that's done therapy, I think it's a, a coping, it's a great storytelling tool to connect us to other people. But I think, you know, actually doing trauma treatment was necessary for me. Right, right. So and interesting uh, you mentioned same that. here. <laughs> yeah. Cause like I think for like a lot of times, Aaron and I are roughly the same age. We're kind of like in this, you know, back half of Gen X kind of, you know, age group. And I don't know about you, Aaron, but one thing I constantly heard from a lot of peers and people who were slightly older than me, uh, in in both personal and professional environments was um this, and I heard this nine times out of ten from men as opposed to women, was blank is my therapy. Going to the gym is my oh, therapy. Yeah, writing yeah. is my therapy. Performing is right. my therapy. Um, f- training it's- to fight is my therapy. Like, and, and and I, all the dudes I trained with, love them to death. Um, but two hundred one, anybody who said that jujitsu or Muay Thai was your therapy—that's <laughs> not that ain't it, bro. Uh, like it's that's no, that's no, that that is that is the symptom saying you need therapy. Like I mean, right. if, if, and then if myself included, like so, I, I think why. Is it an is it a Western culture thing? Is it a hustle culture thing that we have to like, I don't know, monetize our gigs or our passions or and and look to that, look to our work to like solve all these other problems in our life? I'm I'm it's I'm really just putting it to the room. Why is this? Why is this constant thing that we can think we can substitute therapy for just a deep dive into a a hobby or a profession? For for me, it was I felt like I had a sense of control over uh, it was ego and it was fear because, you know, I would book commercials. I would uh, do the craziest shit on VR Troopers where like looking back on it, I got waterboarded for laughs. And I feel like that right there is is uh, uh, a lovely metaphor about where I was in my life, that I was putting my whole life into making other people laugh. And then I would hit the lowest of lows when we would go into hiatus or when we would stop shooting. And then I would book the next thing and I would put it all into that and I would come off on a high and I would go into these lows. But I would just thought that that was normal, that that was just a part of it. I thought I was normal. Until, you know, the stuff with Sarah happened and I really had to come to grips with my own life. And that's the first time I went into therapy. And I thought that, you know, you had to be a really broken person to be in therapy. And the therapist told me that he wasn't going to put me on medication because I haven't tried to harm myself. And I'm like, that's that's the prerequisite here. And just talking about everything that led me to this point really opened my, like I had suffered such bad separation anxiety and it wasn't until therapy that I remembered in this random moment that my grandmother who blamed my mom after the accident happened because my mom never visited her in the hospital the entire time she was there for the six months after the palm tree blamed her. My mom went on a trip when I was three years old and she told me my mom was never coming home at three. And it was in that moment in therapy that opened my eyes to, Oh my God, you know, all those years ago, I was given this one thought that my mom was going to forget about me at some point, which led me to a behavior that exhibited itself in many different ways in dysfunctional relationships throughout my life. Cause I would then view that 
fatherhood means that I'm cursed and that I'm going to die. And being in a relationship means that eventually I'm going to be forgotten about and left. And it wasn't until getting into therapy that I was really able to identify those things. Acting didn't identify that for me. You know what I mean? Well, I I feel like a lot um, of what you listed as far as like working out as therapy or comedy as therapy, I think those things are therapeutic. And I think there's a lot of obstacles to therapy. There's a, a whole stigma, like you were just saying that, um, that unless you are suicidal or have self-harm, I think actually everyone should be in therapy, even if you Mm -hmm. aren't suicidal. I think waiting to the point that you break is not healthy. I I also think just living in America is traumatizing. It is yes, like thinking that you might be shot at any moment, uh, school shootings, sending your kids out, like, you know, all of that is, um, is terrifying. A movie theater, like living in this country is traumatizing. And so I I think also living in a, a white patriarchy is traumatizing. And so there's, it's all of it. And so I think, I think the way that we toxic masculinity, like it, it takes, years to undo the learning that y'all have have dealt with and so i think that's an obstacle is the stigma i think there's an actual obstacle to therapy and that a lot of people say like get help and my big thing is like what does that look like you say get help but like it's very difficult here in la to find a therapist that takes insurance i am lucky that i have enough money that i can i i jumped therapists. Like I, I let go of one therapist was looking for another and forgot how hard it is. So many of the therapists are booked up here. Some of so many of them don't take insurance. So many, like it was wild. I had to check myself into an intensive and IOP program, which is an outpatient program where you go home every day, as opposed to inpatient where you're hospitalized mm-hmm. and you're in the hospital every day in group in group therapy. So I was in an outpatient program, but they, the only reason I could do it is because I had insurance. Yeah. So I had a friend this summer who was suicidal and I was trying to get her into the program and they wouldn't take her because she didn't have insurance. So there are actual physical obstacles to getting help. And then once you're in therapy, like you said, you might have a therapist who's kind of a, a <laughs> I was going to say scum. <laughs> I guess that's what came to, Not all therapists are great. Not just because you got no, your no. degree doesn't mean you're good. You know, a lot of people, professionals, just because you're a professional or a doctor, I mean, we've seen countless stories of like women of color who their doctors quite literally do not listen to them. Serena Williams almost died, you know, and had to, had to, and she's a millionaire. You know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because they didn't, you know, even listen to her. And so just because someone's a professional doesn't mean, so you know, we, we often equate it to dating and that it might take a while for you to find the right match. Right. Uh, but there are actual limitations. I want to say, yes, I talk about therapy and I encourage people to go to therapy. And I'm very aware that not everyone has that luxury. Not everyone has that privilege. Um, even people in small towns where it might be more limiting to do some of the treatments, like a lot of the treatments that I've been able to do is because I'm here in LA and it's, you know, I feel bigger cities have things like TMS. I did TMS, which is where they like put electrodes on your head and, and stimulate under stimulated areas. I've done clinical yep. ketamine. Ketamine is illegal, oh, wow. but you can do it with a doctor legally for depression. I've done a bunch of things. Guess what? Because I live here in LA where someone in a smaller rural town, I know because they tweet at me when, when I tweet, you know, I did this and I try to be really vulnerable and share with people just because I know when I was 
spiraling and in the darkness and trying to find anything. If something has worked for me, I try to share it just so people, it might work for them. It might not, but it Mm -hmm. might be a tool in their toolbox. But a lot of people in other areas don't always get that. So there's so many obstacles to getting help. And that's why it is very difficult when people are like, get help. Uh, Yeah. And it also feels condescending, right? Just sure. like get help. Yeah. Just, yeah. I tweeted you know. about suicide rate because suicide suicide rates have been up during this pandemic. And that's yeah. as a suicide survivor, it's like probably the, the thing that's most important to me in my life and in my work. And somebody replied and said, suicide is never the answer. And I wanted to be like, yes, sir. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> we, we've, we've, we're aware. Thank you like, for. Mansplaining suicide for me. Uh, Yeah, Jesus. But it's just so the way that people. Sorry, I'm going to get off this soapbox in one second. No, take take your time. We brought you here with soapbox ready and dust it off for you with like a little. Well, I have one more thing I wanted to say, and that a lot of that toxic masculinity and the the macho like tough mutter dudes that are like you know know, suicide is is a weakness or whatever like they were weak. You know, it's selfish. They also say suicide is selfish. Yes. And for me, what I often say is that was not the first time that person was suicidal. This no. person has lived. You have no idea how many times they pulled themselves out of bed, brought themselves to work, took care of their kids. How like, hard they like fought. How hard they fought. How many days they were brave until it finally broke them. Yeah. You yeah. know, and so so I hate when people say that it's, it's weak or you're, you know, selfish or, you know, this is never the answer. How could, you know, stop being so weak about it and suck it up or whatever yeah you can't suck up you can't suck up no. trauma right 100 you can't, you can't just that, uh that'll blow I, I, up too that's why we see i want to say school shootings and all of that right yes trying to suck up and not address trauma i i, I talked about this on the show i tried to take my life at the age of 17 and it was that year that if i had access to a gun i would have shot up my school if i had access and knew that that was an option and this was way back before the first before Columbine happened. That's it. That's it right there. You nailed it. And thank you for saying that. What I, I'm reminded of um, the movie uh, Boys Don't Cry. And there's an anecdote from the set of that movie where um, it's towards the end of the movie, content warning of that movie, obviously. Um, but there's obviously a very brutal act of, there's two, there's a few brutal acts of violence. But in the first one, one of the male actors uh, in between takes broke down crying uh, because it was just a lot. It was a lot for him to have to, perform committing those acts and um the director uh, whose name it's forgetting me gosh uh but christine vachon was a producer but i'm trying to remember the director's name but anyway so she walked over to the actor and she said like are you okay and um he was just you know talking it through and she's like listen it's good that you're crying um Mm -hmm. it's good that you're crying because the guy who did this in real life couldn't and right and and that kind of helped kimberly pierce Kimberly Pierce. Yeah. Great. God, what, man, why isn't she working more? Um, so, and that's, you see that a lot, obviously. And, and it kind of, kind of like brings me to this other thing, which is, you know, one thing that Aaron and I have talked about on this podcast before when it comes to parenting is finding the balance of, of um, caring for your children and your partner, uh, but as well as, you know, holding space for yourself. Um, I have a lot of friends who are maybe eight to 10 years younger than me. I'm in a sort of a friend group discord. And, you know, when we all sort of like vent about things, um, my friends are sort of reminding me, like, remember to take care of yourself. And I'm like, I have a literal several children who are require me to live just straight up, like just because of 
yay capitalism and all this other stuff. So like for you, how do you, because you have all these followers, you have a lot of people who come to you. Obviously, we reached out to you because of your your experiences with this stuff. How do you find that? Balance? I actually reached out to her because she posted a video of a woman eating a sandwich in a very crazy. <laughs> okay, <laughs> like, yeah, no, no joke. Your Twitter is hilarious. Like, your Twitter, her like, uh, if, and if I was he's like, a friend oh, of shit, mine, I gotta get Danny on. <laughs> if he is a friend of mine, so just to see like your banter Aww. back and forth on on Twitter, like, brings me no shortage of joy. Um, but like, but but no, but like, how do you like? For you, how do you manage or, or you know, to what degree do you struggle with being there for literal strangers who are coming to you for help while at the same time holding space for yourself and establishing your own boundaries of your own care? How, do, how, how is that for you? Are you okay? Like, how does, that, how does that process work for you? I don't have the best boundaries. I mean, I definitely use the mute button a lot, but it's very difficult for me that people accuse. I feel I'm doing the most a lot of the times. And I think a lot of people might be new to my page. And so when I start talking about something, they're like, Oh, it must be nice. You know, you're a TV writer. It must be, you know, and I often, I've talked about this quite a bit. I'm also in the queer community and I often find it is white queer people who do it. It's really weird. It's like, no matter what space they're in, white people have to be the face of that community. And it's, it's definitely something we've dealt with in the queer community as well. Um, And it's very difficult for me that it's, I don't deal with it with people of color typically trying to take me on, but a lot of times I'll deal with white feminists (laughs) is another one I deal with often, Um, needing to be the center of attention in my tweets, needing to be included in all of my tweets. And I'm sometimes I'm like, it's not for you. Like I'll be tweeting about something and they're like, well, what about me? And I'm like, well, it's not for you then. I'm sorry. I cannot speak to the entire community. I can't speak to the entire queer community either. I can't speak to, you know, but it's wild to me that they're, they don't realize that they're so used to being raised uh, in a white society that even in these other spaces that the rest of us are in that are our marginalized communities, they still want to be the center or be included in those, in all of those. And I don't need to be included. I don't need to be included in every space. I don't need to be included in conversations in the black community other than me talking about anti-blackness in in the Latino community. Um, I don't need to be included, you know, in the front and center in Southeast Asian community. Like it's very fascinating to me, or even in queer, if lesbians are having a conversation and I am bi, I don't write them and be like, what about bi people though? And that, but they do that to me. And I find that, and I don't know if they realize how problematic they are. Um, so what I will say is a lot of times people are new to my page. They find me because a tweet of mine went viral and they come and they're like, well, well, why aren't you talking about that? And I normally just, all I Google is my name and that subject and I'll just send it to them, (laughs) you know, (laughs) that's Um, a flex, man. Oh my goodness. I mean, because I have, but also I just did a thread yesterday. I just did a thread yesterday about how a lot of POC, uh, shows are not promoted. Yes. Yes. I wanted to talk about that. They're buying POC shows, but they're not promote. I know because one day at a time was not promoted. Like it, it just, it didn't even have a, it didn't have a great promotional budget. I like never saw commercials for it. And in order to save it, we had to literally do a social media campaign amongst each other. Um, and, and that's not the only one. There's tons of shows like that. Right. And um, what I, at the end of the thing though, I said, and yet I have such little power and I talk about this constantly. Meanwhile, your white fave creators who might have gotten a hundred million dollar uh, deal over at that channel uh, are not speaking up on it at all. 
And a lot of these uh, white creators who are coming up right now who are popping off and whether they're comedians or storytellers or, you know, whatever, they've made an indie film and now they have an HBO deal. They're not speaking about it either. We're the only ones that keep the marginalized people keep (laughs) having to speak up, even though we have such little privilege. But I do try to use what privilege I have. I try to talk about how in my community I am what's seen as the default, I would say for Latinas. I I talk about that quite often. I think when there's a Latina role that's up, I don't even know if they often consider my Afro-Latina sisters. And that is, I've done entire threads on that, but sometimes people Mm -hmm. are new to my page and they think that I haven't. And so that's exhausting because my friends are like, you shouldn't have to prove yourself to them. And I'm like, but I want them to like me and know that I am speaking up on this. Right. You know, it's very hard when people that I respect are like, why didn't you talk about this? And I'm like, oh, I did literally last week. Here it is. You know, and it's like, well, my friends are like, you can't do that for everybody. You can't reply to everybody. And I'm like, but I, you know, when white people do it to me, it's different. But when people within my own community do it, it does I'm like, no, I, I promise you I am. And, and, and even not on that, on WGA panels, I'm in, I'm in rooms that people don't even get to see where I'm yeah. talking about that. I'm, and so that is a, that is a, a, a problem that I feel like get. Meanwhile, <laughs> I'm not going <laughs> to name them, but some of your favorite, like Marvel actors, uh, never talk about it. They have millions right. of dollars and, no one, everyone, they're beloved. And I producer see, credits. Yeah, they. I see memes of them and yeah. we love them and we love their dogs and we love all this stuff. But like, let's go after Danny Fernandez who talks, who already is speaking up a ton, but let's make sure that that's all she gets to do is speak up on it. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about this actually because the talk of, we, we try, and Eddie said earlier about language. Language has been very important in my household and how we communicate our feelings and also just how we communicate around each other. And it wasn't until recently that I started thinking about how language was used around me when I was a kid that ended up forming certain emotional connections to things that ended up being destructive later on in my life. But we, we have been trying very hard. We're working very hard to, to bring diverse stories to my daughter in her children's books and about a month ago, she she wanted us to put one book in the closet because she was afraid of it. Mm-hmm. And we we got her to tell us because the, the the man on the cover of the book had darker skin and he was scary. And that opened up a lot of conversations and a lot of teaching moments with her. And in turn, the book became one of her favorites. It's still in rotation. Um, but in regards to storytelling on a grander scale, with what you're referring to and you know you you are in a position to pitch stories and hopefully get your stories made and seen by a wider audience do you have thoughts on how to change these hearts and minds i mean does it start with with that sort of education in the home speaking as a white man <laughs> that's that's i mean i grew up in a very mexican neighborhood so i also was one of the only white kids in my neighborhood. So I grew up already uh, uh, immersed around other cultures. Mind you, there was a lot of gangs too, but 
now I'm in a, I'm married into a family that are very white, very Christian. My mother-in-law does not believe she has white privilege because she had a harder time growing up where I'm like, eh, you still live in Orange County. You still have a house and you're still white, you know? So I'm wondering. You- well, what I also say to those, cause I get those comments a lot too. And it's like, well, I, I had a, a woman, a 60 year old woman who was like, I, you know, I was poor. I had to work three jobs. I had to, you know, I was on food stay or whatever. And she was like, I, you know, was saying like that she didn't have privilege. And I said, yes. Now imagine doing literally exactly that working three jobs, being on food stamp, be, you know, whatever, and being targeted by the yep. police and yep, being right. denied bank loans and having your white neighbors call, you know, uh, not being able to rent in the community, having them call the cops on you being fearful for your life every time you get pulled over like imagine doing all of those things of being poor and also you know living in a country that literally hates you and uh yeah you could die at any moment and so that that's what i typically tell to people like that it's not that you didn't have a, that you weren't poor right so but like some people are poor and deal with the cops like murdering them you know mm-hmm. or putting or throwing you know people in cages or like you know, like I said, like, uh, denying your, uh, like loans or dealing with racism with even trying to get a job working at a grocery store by a racist store owner, like you're, you're, you know, so yes. So (laughs) that that's typically what I tell to try and get them to grasp it is like someone has lived your exact life, but even harder because of their, with a layer, with a layer of things, yeah. On top of it and trauma. That's what do I try to, feel, I mean, that's what I've got. Go ahead. Go ahead. You know, I was just wondering, do you feel like, how do you, how do you change it? How do you change it? I, I read your Us, tweets and it, I'm like, and, and I, and I, I, I like, I am, I agree. And I'm, I'm with you and I don't know how to fix it other than educating where I can. And on a parental level, most of my educating goes to my daughter and to my mom. Right. But here's what I'll just, and I don't want to answer for Danny, but like, the, the onus and the burden should not be on her in public saying this stuff. The onus and the burden is on us saying this in private in white spaces. The right. onus and the burden should be us. Uh, same thing with misogyny and sexism is that us in the locker room, the boys will be boy shit, us putting a hard line down amongst other white men and saying, this is not okay. This is not acceptable. Fuck that. I was in uh, my, my, I don't want to say which member of my in-laws because it's not fair to them. It's public space. And, and, and they've, they're great people who had a dead angle on this stuff and they made a comment and I was in the backseat of the car with both of them. Again, men who I love very much who are, are a part of my family. Uh, but I had to make it clear that shit is simply not acceptable around me. And you know what, even if they only stop saying that shit around me, that's one less space for saying it. So it's like, that's like the only, that's the onus is on us, Aaron. The onus is on us to do this um, in every interaction, public and private. It's easy to get a hashtag going. It's easy to get like a lot of people to like enthusiastically smash the heart button on Twitter. It's another thing to force a person in private one-on-one to say that that's not okay. Um, And listen, I don't, I'll fully confess, like there's been moments where I just didn't have it in me for various reasons. And all I can do is, is say like, you know what, I can't fuck up and let that shit slide again. I have to like, I have to put in the effort and double down and just the next time an opportunity like that presents itself, do so. Also, you know, you're, you and I both in various capacities have, um, have at various times had a hiring capability. So having the ability to hire and empower other folks uh, and to just give advancement and promotion uh, to folks who are just as likely and fuck it, even if they're not like 
fully qualified. I know I, for one, was not fully qualified to earn some positions I've had over the years. And I was given that opportunity. And then I rose to the occasion. We have to take that same mentality when we hire people who are from like sort of disadvantaged places. Like, again, I don't want to answer for anybody else, but like as, as white dudes, that responsibility is ours and ours alone. Like we shouldn't put that burden and that, that, that very real work and labor on known activists like Danny. I have like three, I'm going to try and make sure I remember all of it. Cause while you were talking, it came up with like three different points I wanted to address. One of them is there is a bias when you're hiring and that I realized even with comedy writers yeah. is that you are more, you know, someone could say like, well, I hired the best person for the job. Is it someone whose script you read, who you related to because they had a similar sense of humor and similar life that you had lived? You know, I, I look a lot of times at late night writers and a lot of them, you know, a lot of most late night hosts are white straight white Mm -hmm. men and a lot of the writers room are straight white men because that is the comedy that they relate to right yeah I've even had some of my friends who are black and brown who have been in there and they're like they can't even say some of these jokes that I'm right like they're not allowed to say some of these jokes but also it's a you know and of course they can um I always say they POC writers know how to write for white men actually very well than vice versa, because white men are the lens through which all media has been told, you know, Mm. since the history of cinema, that has been the majority of the lens of all of these spaces. Only recently, I would say, have we even gotten more women, I would say white women in front of the camera, and then even smaller would be, you know, or or white female-led films, um, like Wonder Woman, like Captain Marvel, like, you know, and then even on a smaller level, women of color, like Issa Rae, uh, or Never Have I Ever, you know, even on a smaller. Yeah. So, so, but, but in the history of cinema, in the decades and decades that we have had it, it has been mostly white men. So it's actually easier for us. And I, w- I, uh, Stephen L. Sears, who is a white writer on, uh, I'm only pointing that out because I'm trying to contextualize this, uh, on Xena, he actually said this on a panel that I was on with him, that it's actually much easier to write white men because that is the fishbowl that we live in, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to turn around and him trying to write us because he hasn't had as much you know, y'all haven't had as much exposure to us on screen because we're not even really there, you know, for you Mm -hmm. to consume as much of our material. So that is one thing I wanted to say when people say, you know, the the Academy Award should go to the best uh, film. And it's like, okay, well, who is in the Academy? And is it possible that they relate to this film about these people that kind of look like them or, or literally look like them or have this life that they have lived more than some of the other films that they just don't relate to so they don't resonate with it as much. So that is one thing I wanted to say as far as hiring or picking, you know, the quote unquote best. Um, two, a lot of times my guy friends will be like, well, I know I'm just like a straight white guy. And I'm like, yes, but exactly. You can get into spaces that the rest of us can't. Mm-hmm. You can be a snake <laughs> in there. <laughs> ah. you can be a weasel. You can weasel your way in and get it. You know, you can talk to people who won't even talk to us. You know, there are some people who are like, you know, you're Mexican. I don't even want to speak to you. I don't even want to listen to you. They're already, you know, biased. And, um, and I'm saying that as someone who sounds American. So I'm very aware of my privilege. I, do, I don't like to say I sound white because um, America, one, the British didn't even sound like this when they came over here. I think this is an amalgamation of all of us. That's, I, you know, yeah. I, there was a, sh- seen an insecure where a girl asked Issa Rae, why do you sound white? And Issa is very clearly 
not white, but she is American. She grew up here and that's why she sounds the way that that I do. Whereas like Idris Elba is British and that's why he, you know, so I don't like saying that I sound white, I sound American. Um, but same with my Asian American friends and and vice versa. And, you know, so that was what else? Yes. So you do, you do play an important role in this. And I would say even speaking up on social media, I think a lot of times, I guess I feel like my white friends are scared that they're not going to say the right thing. So they don't say anything. I think you can amplify a lot of people in a lot of the threads, but I think you can also be like, why is this keep happening? We, you know, um, as opposed to just having us standing out there on our own. What, what, I, what I've tried to do is just, I've, I've, and I've made this mistake in the past of like, so a friend of mine, a, a person of color will make um, um, a point and I so emphatically agree with it. And, and I, I occupy this weird little space. Like I have multiple, um, my family has multiple sort of like a lot of mixed ethnicity. My brother's half Chinese. My cousins are Mexican. My cousins are half Mexican, white presenting with the last name of Fernandez. Um, my cousin Melinda married a dude who's also half white, half Mexican with the last name of Bauer. Their daughter is half Mexican. They all look white as fuck, whiter than me. Um, and But it's just interesting to see how like the layers of privilege went when Melinda went from being Melissa Fernandez or Melinda Fernandez to um, Melinda Bauer, right? Like, so it's very interesting to see just like that happen in real time. What I've tried to do is I, I so emphatically agree with some of these points, but I've made the mistake in the past of simply repeating the point back to the person in the process of agreeing with them. It's rooted in empathy of saying like, yeah, I agree with you because of X, Y, and Z. And all I'm doing is just restating the stuff they said. Whereas I've had to think about what is a better use of my response? Is it simply responding and, and laddering their own language back up to them? Or is it a retweet with a quote saying, Hey, listen to this person, you know, just like what is the best use of it? I think another thing is we're so exhausted from having to deal with racists online that I would much rather y'all call them out than me having yes. to do it yeah. right and even trolls i i so thank the people i wish they would untag me but i do thank the people who take on the trolls in my um in my comments uh that i do appreciate because so i don't have to and it's not right. just even with with racism i deal with sexism like i had you know men who who have sent me dick pics or will be like i would love to receive pics of titties. I don't understand why you wouldn't want to receive pictures of dicks. And I'll just quote tweet and be like, I, I don't have the time today if someone else has the time and other men do <laughs> and, they'll, and they'll reply to them. And so, and I love it because it'll be a bunch of men replying to a fellow man who, who they're taking the time. So I don't have to, and I appreciate yeah. that infinitely. Um, so that I don't have to, you know, um, my wife just came in. I guess my daughter just woke up. So uh, this is the point in the show where we have to start closing out. I want to ask you one more question, though, Danny. Um, you uh, on social media, you have a huge presence and uh, part of your message, I believe, is body positivity and confidence. Mm-hmm. And that is a thing that we definitely are championing here. Uh, and I've been um, stopped multiple times with certain words, I guess I have said that could be taken in the wrong way. And it, we've talked a lot about language throughout this, this episode, but um, with how social media works, especially now with young people and with the way our culture tends to already put huge expectations on women with uh, how you present in public and how you look and weight and makeup and fashion and everything else. 
Um, I'm curious, just from your perspective, talking to me, a guy mm-hmm. who is in his mid forties, who is a dad of a girl who she's going to get to an age where I am not at all going to understand how to relate or communicate or understand. Maybe I'm assuming how she wants to express herself or interact in the world. What sort of advice do you have any for a guy like me uh, in, in connecting to a, a girl like that in a realm, like the one we exist in? Does that yeah, make sense? I think, I think, you know, propping women up by things that aren't just their body, I think is important, especially for young women. I see often dads will, you know, aside from saying their daughter is beautiful, but it's like, you're funny, you're smart. Like I see that a lot with my, my guy friends when they're trying to, you know, um, talk to their, the daughter. So it's not just about their appearance. Cause I think that mm. that can be really, that's how it was for me growing up. Um, and I was, I was actually going to say when you said that you had your first attempt or, or, or almost had your first attempt in high school, I had my first attempt when I was in middle school. So oh my, my, my first suicide attempt was in middle school and that's not actually uncommon, um, you know, for unfortunately, especially now with, with social media, I feel like it's increased even more, but it has, um, yes. I was, I was bullied so heavily in middle school. Middle school is vicious. I think it's actually worse than high school because you're still like so much of your body is transitioning and, and, you know, high school, I feel like they're a tad more mature, but middle school was so brutal for me. Um, and I was dealing with, I lived in orange County, which is racist as hell. That's where my in-laws live. live. And I, you know, they would be like, your dad's a gardener and you're like all the stuff that I like just being picked on, which by the way is fine, but it's, it's really difficult when white people act like you, uh, are servants to them. Uh, so I was dealing with that. Uh, I was dealing with, you know, my own sexuality and the fact that like people didn't think I was attractive. So that was heartbreaking for me. And then literally being bullied for my body and that I, I, I OD'd when I was in middle school, um, and very lucky that I lived, but, um, what I would say is being okay. Also not shaming girls is another thing Mm -hmm. I developed really early, very early. And I think, we often make women feel that they should be ashamed. I think also girls that get curves when they're younger, it's kind of terrifying to me that they're sexualized when it's just bodies. You know, there's um, America Chavez, who is a Marvel, a Latina Marvel character. Uh, One of the iterations of her, she's in certain times she's uh, in college, certain times she's in high school. This iteration of her, she had, tits she had a butt and ass and tits and thighs and people were like you know you sexualized her and all this stuff I'm like no she's just a soccer player like she looks like how I did when I was in high school it's really weird to me that you don't allow women to just have their bodies without Mm -hmm. it being sexual and I think that that is uh also I want to say a common thing with women of color that they get heavily sexualized when they develop early but just women in general that really is terrifying to me uh so I think you know periods should be a thing that aren't shameful, you know, um, just making sure that women feel okay, that, that young girls feel okay in their bodies, that they're able to see positive representation of their bodies, um, I think is really important. Allowing, not shaming them for eating. That was another thing I was heavily shamed for, for eating. And that can be really, I developed an eating disorder. And so I think it's all of that, but I definitely think, you know, aside from just letting them know that they are 
beautiful. I think we need to make sure that that's not the only thing that we're propping them up about because if that gets taken away or they feel, you know, if their appearance is changing, that could be really scary if that's your one stable thing. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's my like body positivity thing, but I also am aware it's, it's a really fascinating place I found myself in, right? Because I was bullied so heavily that I tried to kill myself. And yet now I found myself, I'm not plus sized, you know, I'm not, uh, I am, I'm average size. I'm actually less. I think the average American, uh, American woman is actually bigger than me. So I think it's an interesting conversation and one that I have to be aware of, of my privilege. And I realized mm -hmm. this when talking with my friend, my friend was like, she kind of wrote a post on Facebook and was like the, you know, these bitches that are like, you know, you're not even double digits and you guys are acting. And I was like, what the fuck? Like I'm not double digits. And I, you know, and so I, I got in a, an argument with her and it was so fascinating. Cause she was like, Danny, and yet you're still, I was like, I was literally bullied. Like I, I literally had an eating disorder that I had to get help for, um, you know, and yet realizing she still has it harder than me. Like that's, I think there's privileges on a spectrum. That's what I hope a lot of people take away from this. I have privilege on a spectrum as, as being a Latina, being the skin color that I am, being how I sound, you know, I don't have as much privilege as say you or, or other people even in my community, but I have a level of privilege. And then I have a level of body privilege that some of my friends don't. Um, it doesn't matter if, yes, I, I might still deal with, racism, sexism, uh, trolls. I definitely deal with people still telling me that I'm ugly, like never to invite me back because I, I, I have a strong jaw and people be like, you look like a man or she's fat or like all these things. But truth be told, I still have more privilege than say my plus size friends. And so I think it's just DBT realizing <laughs> the end is like, yes, I deal with this and I still have more privilege than some of the other people in my community. And so that that is so helpful, again, that both of those things can exist. Yeah. Um, so, Danny, we would love to have you back. So you could always come <laughs> back if you want. Um, we have been trying out a new segment of the show where Eddie and I talk about a thing that we've watched or played or whatever. And originally I had workshopped this as being called Dad Distractions. <laughs> you know, like distractions for the I don't know if that I works, but, but uh, the last time we did this was the TV show Generation on HBO Max, which uh, somehow speaks to my just speaks to me. I'm a, almost 45 <laughs> years old and I'm like I'm relating to the, the the queer main character who reminds me a lot of my best friend who is gay and mixed race and moved to Hawaii and is now a farmer. So I don't know how that is worked out that he thought I could do that, but. This week, I've been watching a show called Made for Love on HBO Max as well, which I didn't know what it was. And it's all it, it's the main concept of this show is it's the near future. And a big tech a tech mogul has come up with this um, technology of a chip that you can put in couples brains to have them merge consciousnesses and take away any sort of secrets and in the process, you probably can guess that issues of consent uh, mm. come into play because the woman played by Kristen Milioti 
doesn't know she already has the chip implanted in her head. And the husband is very controlling and doesn't know how to basically interact in the world and in society and just wants to find love. All the while, her father is played by Ray Romano, who is dealing with the grief and loss of his wife. And instead of connecting with a real person, falls in love with a sex doll. And it's this funny but dramatic show about consent and connection in uh, in a reality where we as a society are heavily immersed in technology and gadgets and screens that take us away from ourselves. Um, Eddie, do you have anything? I do. Um, yeah. So, you know, we were talking about <laughs> layers of privilege. Uh, I, I've recently identified with that in some significant ways. Uh, I went public with it on Twitter. I'll go public with it now. Um, I was recently diagnosed uh, as being as on the autism spectrum. So uh, with Asperger's, uh, and so it's been, uh, this has been a long time coming, working with various doctors and trying to get that squared away. But a big part of what was able to help me was my friend, Sarah Kerchak, who is an author. And I recently read through her memoir called I Overcame My Autism and All I Got Was This Lousy Anxiety Disorder, a memoir. Uh, yeah, she's great. <laughs> super, super funny. She writes for Fanbyte and Vice and Consequences Sound. Really good, really good, talented writer. But uh, I encourage anybody who either knows someone who is neurodiverse or has children who are neurodiverse, this is a great way to look at autism spectrum disorder from an adult lens uh, to help remind everybody that autism does not end at five uh, and that there are far worse things than simply having sort of a neurodivergent profile. Um, But yeah, go check it out. And I didn't at all tell you, Danny, that we do stuff like this, but if there's a thing that you're into this week that you want to tell people to watch, listen to, play, read, whatever, let me know. I'm always into Ted Lasso. I like uh, oh, for yeah. it so much. It's so great and positive. And I just think we need more of that. Also, Dairy Girls, which mm. is uh, heavily recommend. It's about, it's about uh, these high school girls, but I have a feeling you'll relate to them as well. It's um, four girls in Dairy, Ireland. Uh, it's set in the 90s and it's a great comedy. It's hilarious, but it's essentially, uh, I'm, you know, my family being Catholic, they're super Catholic. And so it's dealing with Catholics versus Protestants, Ireland versus Irish versus British, um, and just like a ton of humor, but it had to do with uh, the occupation and war that was taking place in the nineties. And these girls are trying to go to high school during that time. So it's really fascinating. It's like hardcore comedy, but also has some elements of like, you know, they're dealing with like bombs and and other things happening in the IRA and, but it's very, very funny. And the, the nuns in it are so funny and, and the priest, and it's just like a really hilarious, they're, you know, at Catholic school. And so it's just a really funny comedy. I think Dairy Girls is on. Is that Netflix? Hulu? Yeah, Netflix. Netflix. Yeah, got it. All right, Danny. My goodness, I knew that we were going to get into some things, but I am so excited that you you came on and uh, spoke. Um, before we uh, go, um, do you want to tell the people listening how to find you if uh, online? Sure, I'm at Ms. Danny Fernandez. It's M S D A N I F E R N A N D E Z. I would say, just remember I'm a person, <laughs> you know, I did my, be- I yes. do my best when I'm, tr- you know, I don't think anyone's perfect, but, um, I don't know. That's all. Please don't write me if you're like mad. I just, I'm sure a lot of people get mad at me <laughs> and I've just, I've dealt with enough in my life. So yeah, everybody, yeah, that's, again, 
we can exist in an and we can exist. You can have your opinion and you can understand that, you know, I feel like a big problem there is social media. You don't have that person in front of you. So then you just get immersed in your own self important issues. And that can usually align with anxiety, hate, anger, like the bad stuff. I usually just tell people to put the phone down and go for a walk, go outside, you know, but play, play ball. I, you know, read a book. I I don't know. Eat an apple. Um, Danny, this has been wonderful. I, I I am so happy to have you here. I'm sure Eddie is as well. Um, Once again, this is episode number 13 of the dad word spiral. I know uh, we talked about spiraling earlier. Uh, We talked about a lot of things. Um, Once again, if you enjoy the show, please give us a review. Uh, subscribe, like us, um, send us candy. I don't know. Uh, I know Eddie likes candy. I said flowers just because Mother's Day is coming up and that would uh, de- defeat me having to go out to a store and I could give flowers to my wife from all of you, which would be actually really lazy of me. So forget that suggestion. Um, next week, we are going to be having Drew Daywalt on the show. Drew Daywalt started as a horror filmmaker who... Uh, is now a best-selling children's book author. And I'm excited to talk to him about the journey from scaring the shit out of people to um, educating the young ones. But until then, Eddie, is there anything else you wanted to say? No, just thank you again, Danny, for coming aboard. And uh, yeah, we've. I, I, the cool thing is, is that we've actually got um, a pretty stacked guest roster coming up, kind of kicking off with Danny. We're now entering into a block of some folks who I think are going to have uh, some really interesting perspectives on the show. So uh, definitely a big part of the reason why Aaron started the show and why I wanted to be a part of it was the folks we get to talk to along the way. It's, it's the friends we dadded along the way. Danny, is there any final thing you would like to say to our listeners before we go? No, I just, please be nice. and Please like, be nice. Yes. That's, I'm that's sorry if I didn't answer something exactly. And again, I'm trying to acknowledge. Totally fine. The, the spectrum that, you know, a lot of these uh, answers don't have a clear, in my opinion. Yes. Answer. And I think also just realizing that if you had 97,000 followers, you would have to probably think about a lot of other people that aren't just yourself. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I'm trying to do gracefully. And I think it's better actually to have these conversations than to shut them down and not have them at all. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that there's necessarily a right answer to anything that I said, but I think hopefully it's worth talking about and, and kind of looking at maybe some of the more forgotten people in our communities and how we can listen to them a little bit more. Yes. hundred percent. We always try to say, uh, be kind and kindness is, is a thing that it seems so simple of a concept. But once I became a dad, I started really, uh, reflecting on my own negativity and grumpiness and just uh, output into the world. And now it's, I'm try so hard to operate from a place of love instead of fear. So we like to say it's chaos. Be kind to a paraphrase, Michelle McNamara, uh, Patton Oswalt's late wife. And, uh, from Eddie, myself and Danny until next time we speak, be excellent to each other. Thanks for listening. James Baldwin once wrote, I am what time circumstance history have made of me. Certainly but I am also much more than that. And that's really why I wanted to start Black on Black. My name is Julian Michael. I'm a comedian. I'm a writer. I'm an educator. I do a lot of things, but really, Black on Black isn't about me. 
It's about sharing stories of all kinds of people from across the diaspora. And I hope that when you listen, you'll learn something, you'll enjoy, and you'll start a conversation. Check out Black on Black right here on Dragon Wagon Radio. Dragon Wagon.